This morning, uh, I'm so thankful to have an opportunity to stand before you and share from God's Word. And it also reminds me I'm thankful for brothers in in the body who are willing and able and qualified to stand up and and lead in other aspects of the service. I'm so grateful for that. Uh, It is a blessing indeed. Well, we're back in the book of John, and um, we're going to be in John chapter 6. But before diving into our passage today, I think it would be helpful for us to take a few moments to to kind of review some of the important features about the gospel of John itself as a literary book. John's gospel combines three ingredients, what Jesus did, what Jesus said, his discourses and dialogues, and people's responses to Jesus. The gospel is also only the only one of the four that contains a precise statement regarding the author's purpose. For the writer John declares, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And that is, of course, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So the primary purposes of this gospel, then, are therefore twofold. They're evangelistic, And they're apologetic in nature. Reinforcing the evangelistic purpose of the gospel is the fact that the word believe occurs approximately 100 times in this gospel. The apologetic purpose is very closely related. John wrote to convince his readers of Jesus' true identity as the incarnate God-man, whose divine and human natures were perfectly united into one person as the prophesied Messiah and Savior of the world. Now, the first six chapters of the gospel form one large unit. They proclaim the glorious Son of God who became flesh, is shown revealing Himself to an ever-widening circle of individuals, and then is rejected. First in Judea in chapter 5, and then in Galilee in chapter 6. John's gospel rather focuses on Jesus as the Word, the Messiah, and Son of God, who brings the gift of salvation to mankind, who either accept or reject the offer. Now, we've been in chapter 6 for some time, and uh, as Pastor Jim has gone through verse by verse in this chapter, and we have seen Jesus perform some of His greatest recorded miracles. We have seen Jesus use a little boy's lunch of bread and fish and supernaturally create more than enough food to feed over 5,000 people. Some commentators estimate he fed between 10 to 20,000 people, including men and women and children. But only 5,000 were men. And this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. And we also see that he's walked on the water, the Sea of Galilee, to join his disciples who sailed out without him. And also the feeding of the crowd, it sets up one of Jesus' greatest evangelistic messages, the bread of life discourse, to an ever-increasing crowd of followers that flocked around him. And today we're going to bring this chapter, chapter 6, to a close 
And what I think is really one of the saddest endings in all of Scripture. So if you will, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, first starting with verse 59, and we'll be going through 71. And as you're turning there and you find your place, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. John chapter 6, verses 59 through 71. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from my father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You may be seated. In a short prayer, O gracious God, your words are indeed life. We pray now that your spirit would speak to our hearts and that your word would not return into you void. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Commentators tell us that a span of time of up to at least a year had transpired between the events recorded in chapter 5, and the events recorded in chapter 6, based on the Jewish festivals that are mentioned in both chapters. And during this time, Jesus had attracted a very large crowd of followers. And as I mentioned previously, at the beginning of chapter 6, he miraculously feeds an extremely, extremely large crowd of people, 10 to 20,000, from a little boy's lunch, and then had 12 baskets of leftovers after everybody had their fill. And as we survey chapter 6, we see that there are basically three groups of people that Jesus interacts with in these verses. You can think of these groups as concentric circles, one circle inside of another. In the outer circle are the Jews. The Jews are the religious leaders of the local synagogues. In the middle circle is the crowd that followed Jesus around. And they are sometimes referred to as the crowd, as in verses 2 and 24 and 22. And John also refers to them as, uh, with the general word, disciples. 
as in verses 60 and 66. And finally, the third group are the inner circle of the 12 disciples whom Jesus had chosen early on in his ministry and spent most of his time with. John refers to this group as disciples in verses 3, 16, and 24. And he addresses several of them by name in the course of the feeding of the crowd. This inner circle of 12 are also referred to as the 12 in verse 67. Now, as John unfolds the chapters and the events of this chapter, rather, we see Jesus performing miracles and signs that authenticate his message that he is the promised Messiah. But he isn't the Messiah that the Jews nor the crowd of followers expected or really even wanted for that matter. He didn't meet their expectations. And this is very evident from the reaction of the crowd to Jesus' miracles and his teaching. After getting their stomachs filled with fish and bread at the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 in Bethsaida, which is recorded in Luke 9, how does the crowd react? Let's look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, they wanted to exalt Jesus to an earthly kingship. They are in essence saying, wow, this is great, free food. We didn't have to do anything to get this. Hey, hey, everybody, let's make Jesus our king. We're so tired of this Roman oppression and rule that we're under. Let's make him our king. You know, it's easy just to follow the crowd, isn't it? It's so easy. And what's Jesus' reaction? He withdraws. He withdraws from them because that wasn't his purpose in coming. He wasn't there to set up an earthly kingdom. He was about establishing a heavenly kingdom. So sometime later, in the darkness of the evening, Jesus is still out on the mountain somewhere. We don't know exactly where. He's by himself. The crowd, many of them probably turned and some of them may have went to their homes. The ones that stayed there uh, by the sea, getting ready to settle down for the night. And the 12 disciples decide, it's, man, it's dark. We got to get out of here. So they jump in the boat. They don't know where Jesus is at, you know. So they get in the boat. And by the way, it's the only boat on the shore, according to verse 22. That's what it tells us. And they set sail. They're going to Capernaum. And what happens? Jesus performs two more miracles. First, by walking the three to four miles out onto the Sea of Galilee to meet the disciples in the boat. Now, at first, they're afraid. But he calms them with his words, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then after receiving him into the boat, they are miraculously, as John records, immediately at their destination in Capernaum. Now, we notice in verse 24, we see the crowd seeking Jesus. 
And, you know, the next morning, the crowd gets back up, wakes up, and they realize three things. Now, wait a minute. We, we, hmm, Jesus is not here. We saw the disciples get in the only boat that was on the shore, and Jesus didn't leave with them. So, what they do, they get into the other boats that had come close from Tiberias to go to seek Jesus. They head off to Capernaum, all right? And they find him. Verse 25 tells us that the crowd investigates this incident that occurred that they witnessed with a question to Jesus in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Notice Jesus' response in verse 26. Does Jesus greet them with a warm welcome? Does he say, oh, hey, everybody, I'm so glad to see you. I'm so glad you're able to join us today for this synagogue teaching service today. No, not at all. No, Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He cuts, actually, through the chase of their question. And he confronts them with the true motive of why they were seeking him in Capernaum. Verse 26 says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, the crowd, it's only interested in the free physical comforts that Jesus could provide and the sensational signs and wonders that he's performed. Yet Jesus continues to teach them and the Jews about the heavenly realities of who he is through the use of physical terms, terms and concepts in the bread of life discourse. But they can't get past their literal interpretations of his figurative language. Jesus keeps telling them, and I, I can see it's almost like there's neon signs with arrows pointing at him. It says, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes has eternal life. Believe. And the crowd just stands there in unbelief. And the Jews grumble and dispute among themselves and reject Jesus. What's the problem here? Is Jesus just a terrible communicator? Does he need to take a, a course in how to communicate? <laughs> Is there a lack of evidence to, to prove his claims? Is that why they're not persuaded? No, not at all. They have hardened their hearts against the giver of life in the sin of unbelief. Twice, Jesus reiterates the truth of the effectual call of the elect. Once to the crowd in verse 37 where he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then he says it again in response to the Jews in verse 44. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, admittedly, there is great mystery involved here, but we cannot dismiss what Jesus plainly says. There is a sovereign choice and divine activity involved in bringing the unredeemed to saving faith. 
Now, we don't have the time to explore this topic today, but Pastor Jim did a couple of weeks ago. So I encourage you to go to our website and listen to that sermon. And also, in your own study, go to Romans 9 and several other passages. You can wrestle with this topic. What you're going to discover is that salvation is a gracious gift of God. But now let me dispel a couple of two extremes that many struggle with in terms of God's sovereign choice in election. First, let me state this. In heaven, you won't find someone whom God saved who genuinely didn't want to be saved. Second, in hell, you won't find someone whom God rejected who genuinely wanted to be saved. So get the extremes out of your mind, okay? Because that's not the God we serve. Now, as the Jews grumbled and disputed among themselves, and the crowd stood in bewilderment and unbelief over the things that Jesus was saying about himself, he links the spiritual realities of his future atoning sacrifice on the cross in very real physical terms. And it's in verse 56. And this metaphor is what pushes his hearers over the edge. In verse 56, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And now we come to our primary text for today. We see the crowd respond to Jesus' message. As Jesus finished his dialogue with the crowd at the synagogue in Capernaum, the crowd responded among themselves. Notice, they didn't direct their response to Jesus directly. They say, this is a hard saying among themselves. Who can listen to this? Now, the word translated from the Greek as hard or difficult in our Bible translations, it doesn't mean something that's hard or rough to the touch uh, or something that's difficult to understand. The Greek word skleros used here is in the sense of harsh or offensive. To put it plainly, the crowd finds Jesus' words completely intolerable. Intolerable for several reasons. Number one, they were more interested in the free food, the freedom from Roman oppression, and the manipulative miracles that Jesus could provide than in the spiritual realities that the feeding miracle pointed to. Number two, they were also unwilling to relinquish their own sovereign control over their lives, even in religious matters. And they hardened their hearts in the sin of unbelief. And third, they were stuck. They were stuck in a strict, literal interpretation of the metaphors that Jesus was using regarding the bread, regarding his body and his blood. And these things they clearly considered as taboos. Now, Jesus responds to the crowd in John six sixty one to 65. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is 
the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. We see Jesus' display here of divine omniscience in verses 61 and 64. In 61, he knew what they were saying among themselves. They didn't have to say it to his face. He immediately asked them, do you take offense at this? Or other translations may say, does this offend you? Or does this cause you to stumble? The Greek verb translated offense, offend, and stumble is from a Greek noun that refers to the stick that's used to set a bait trap or a snare or the crooked stick that springs the trap. So the verb does not merely signify offend or stumble, nor does it mean to kill. It means cause to fall into a trap. Here in the figurative sense, cause to sin. Jesus, therefore, is asking whether by his sermon, these hearers have actually been seduced or led into sin. Yet, it was not the hardness of the sermon, but rather the hardness of their own hearts, as I said before, that had brought about this unfavorable reaction on their part. But Jesus continues with another follow-up question in verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man, ascending to where he was before. Now, if the crowd finds Jesus' claims, his authority, and his language of this sermon very offensive, then what are they going to think when they see him on the cross? Because that's his path to ascending back to the Father. This is a supreme scandal. The thought of a crucified Messiah it just borders on blasphemous and obscenity. It's outrageous. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But this stands at the very heart of God's self-disclosure to the crowd and loved ones to us today. And the condition of this question is left open. Have you noticed that? It's left open. It isn't answered. Because how men and women respond to this supreme scandal determines their eternal destiny. Jesus continues his dialogue in verse 63. He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, the best way to interpret this verse is, of course, in its context. The focus of the crowd up to this point has been on the physical aspects of life at the expense of the spiritual. And here, Jesus instructs them that that's the case, that their focus has been merely physical, and that the eternal priority of the spiritual should be their point of reference. But that's why they are offended by his words. 
We have already seen the importance and the role the Holy Spirit plays in the new birth in Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus in John 3, where he instructs that one must be born again, born of water and the Spirit. Jesus himself is already the bearer of the Holy Spirit, as John 1.32 and following tells us, and he's the one to whom God gives the Spirit without limit and who speaks the words of God, John 3 and 34. So it follows then that Jesus is more than qualified to claim that his words and the words that he's speaking to the crowd at this point in time are spirit and they are life. Isn't Jesus the word become flesh, just as John 1.14 declares? And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. Verse 64 is the other instance where Jesus displays omniscience. But there are some of you who do not believe. And then John puts a parenthetical comment there in parentheses, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Here we see Jesus' past Perfect knowledge of all the unbelieving hearts in the crowd on a very personal level. What's more, we see his past perfect knowledge of who his betrayer would be before the betrayal ever occurred. Only God could know this. Only God could know this. And for the final time, Jesus reiterates the truth regarding the effectual call upon those whom the Father has given to the Son. Continuing his dialogue in verse 64, Jesus says in verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So how will the crowd respond? Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. These are some of the saddest words recorded in Scripture. It was a full-on rejection. Decisive. Final. The commitment of the crowd was merely superficial. D.A. Carson in his commentary writes, Jesus' additional remarks have done nothing to remove the offense they have found in his words. He did not, ex he didn't, he did not expect it to be otherwise and would not shape his comments to pander to their taste. What they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. These Galileans thus joined the earlier Jerusalem followers who failed to pass the test of unqualified allegiance and perseverance grounded in grace-prompted faith. Hear the words of 1 Peter 2, 6-8. through 8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, 
I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Loved ones, Christianity was never intended to be a universalist mass movement. Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now as the camera with wide angle lens, it goes showing the crowd as they one by one and in groups, maybe even by entire families, turn their backs and walk away from Jesus in complete rejection. It now refocuses back to Jesus as he turns to the twelve and asks in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? Understanding Jesus' perfect knowledge of who belongs to him, it's it's very doubtful that he asked this question for his own benefit. It's more probable that the defection of the crowd was so substantial that the twelve were being tested and given an opportunity to verbally affirm their allegiance to Christ. Then the camera turns to Peter and Peter in rare form as the usual voice of the twelve spoke up. Verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Loved ones, we don't know how much of the preceding dialogue that Peter understood. We don't know. But he did pick up on verse 63. And what a tremendous confession it was. Peter was spot on. God has placed an innate knowledge of him within all of us. And nothing in this life can satisfy that longing besides him. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has put eternity into man's heart. Our soul's eternal satisfaction can only be found in Jesus. He alone has the words of eternal life. The other world religions, they attempt in vain to satisfy the soul as Paul discovered when he visited Athens in Acts 17. 
My goodness, they had shrines for every known God of that time. And they even had a shrine for the unknown God, just in case they missed one. But you know, I can hear, as Peter makes his confession, I can hear the others among the twelve agreeing with Peter and nodding in affirmation. But on the heels of this glorious confession by Peter, the camera once again goes back to Jesus as he speaks and he makes a startling revelation. Verse 70, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. John says, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Just in case Peter or any of the other disciples misunderstand and think they had some advantage over the defectors of the crowd because of some special knowledge or abilities, Jesus made sure they understood that they did not choose him. The same effectual call that Jesus reiterated to the Jews in the crowd, it applied to the twelve also. And while they were all chosen by Jesus to be part of that inner circle, one was a devil, diabolos in Greek. It means slanderer, accuser. And John identifies him as Judas Iscariot the eventual betrayer of Christ. And as Jesus makes this statement, the camera moves from Jesus' eyes to the eyes of each disciple. Finally, revealing the intense downcast stare of one Judas Iscariot. In conclusion, and by way of application, there's no such thing as a half-hearted commitment to Jesus Christ. Since Jesus wasn't shocked by the defection of the crowd or the Jews or even the eventual betrayal by Judas Iscariot, it should be no surprise to us that someone who attends church their entire lives could be an unbeliever. And this is cause for each of us, everyone sitting in this place, to heed Paul's instructions to the Corinthians and to test and examine our own lives for evidence of salvation. What would such evidence look like? It would include trusting Christ. It would be obedience to God, growth in holiness, the fruit of the Spirit, love for other Christians, positive influence on others, adhering to the apostolic teaching and the testimony of the Holy Spirit within. Friends, would it be wrong to be amazed at the unbelief of a person who grew up with a Christian upbringing 
who was urged to consider the claims of Jesus, who reads their Bible most days and came here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to listen and learn and just walk away and do so routinely. The thought of such a thing, it it just intrigues me. I hope this doesn't describe you today. Well, I, I want to end as affectionately as I can to to implore you, if this does describe you, to move off the fence. I want to end today with a quote. It's a rather lengthy quote, and I appreciate your your patience. A quote from a sermon that's 148 years old. It's a sermon preached by Charles Spurgeon in London in 1870. He, he says it so much better than I could ever do. He says, There are some of you who know that Christ is God. You know He's able to save from sin. You know He's able to save you, and yet you're unsaved. And I marvel at your unbelief because you confess that it leaves you in a state of ruin and will land you in a state of everlasting confusion. You know you're filthy and that the fountain is open. Why then don't you wash? You know Christ will save you if you trust Him. You know He's worthy of your trust. Oh, why will you not trust Him? In the name of everything that is reasonable, why not trust Him? Your unbelief is the more amazing because the cause from which it arises is so inexcusable. With some of you, your unbelief is the effect of inconsiderateness. You don't think about it. You believe, but believe superficially. You do not weigh and judge. Oh, is it so? Will you ruin your own souls for want of thought? You look as I gaze upon you to be men and women of intelligence. And can you with intelligence and education trifle with your souls in light of eternity? You know its meaning and yet can you trifle with it? You are immortal. No flame shall ever devour your soul. You shall outlast the sun, and when the moon has waned for the last time, you still shall live. And will you dare to tempt God's anger so as to live forever beneath His frown? When a simple trust in Jesus will secure for you a happy immortality, shall you, through carelessness, suffer your soul to drift down the stream to the dark ocean of despair? My dear friends, some of you who have been sitting here for years and yet do not believe, your marvels to me, count you that little? Your marvels to many in your family who long expected to see you on the Lord's side. You're even a wonder to devils. Even they can't make it out. The power of their spells has amazed even them. You are a wonder to the damned in hell. 
with what welcome eagerness would they avail themselves of an opportunity to escape from misery, and yet you trifle with such opportunities. You are a marvel to the angels who would have rejoiced over you if you had returned to your father, and who ponder that you stand at the cross's foot from Sunday to Sunday, and yet doubt the power of him who bled on it. You are marvels to the Lord himself. One of these days, unless you repent, you will be a wonder to yourselves, for this text will come true to you, if God prevent it not. Behold, you who despise me, wonder and perish. But I hope better things of you, even things which accompany salvation, though I thus speak. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Before the Redeemer was taken up and ascended to his throne, he left this message to us, his disciples. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. Believe and be baptized. And God grant you his salvation for Jesus' sake. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And he'll give that right to you today if you will turn to him in humble, believing, repentant faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know the spiritual condition of every person in this room. Holy Spirit, come now. Convict and produce a repentance that leads to salvation. Do this for Jesus' sake. Amen.